boss everyone welcome to the charvak podcast this is kushal mehra all right today is part 2 of the podcast uh, uh, where we are covering the abrogation of article 370 part 1 of this podcast was uh, us covering the history behind article 370 then we jumped into the arguments given by the petitioners so as nikhil and i were doing uh, going back and forth nikhil told me that this podcast cannot be in two parts so there will be a part 3 of this podcast too now but today's part is going to cover the concept of sovereignty which is uh, at the heart of this subject where the cookie crumbles right what is the concept of sovereignty why is the sovereignty of jammu and kashmir discussed constantly all the time vis-a-vis the sovereignty of the indian state and today we are going to look into that and then in part 3 we will expand on many other uh, aspects of the judgment of the supreme court itself which was the five bench uh, bench judge led by justice chandrachud so having said that nikhil welcome abhi shuru ho jao uh thank you so much kushal look i honestly i could have done this in one part and just said things that i wanted to say but because the format here is not really a discursive format right this is i'm talking hard law hard constitutionalism and it is inherently an expression of the details of what is contained in a, what is what i regard as a seminal judgment this is a exceptionally important judgment it puts to end about 70 years of very protracted politics it's it's been which has been at the source of wars for this country so i think i i figured that one of this second part had to be all about the larger question that has always bothered indian citizens in general which is how is it that jnk stands separate to every what is this 370 why did it stand separate why did it have a separate constitution did this imply that it had some kind of independent sovereignty within india because if you go back from part 1 you recall one of the arguments the most extreme form of this argument was that in fact even article 370 is dead on the dissolution of the constitutional assembly of the state of jnk because from that day onwards there is nothing but absolute sovereignty in jnk right that explain is, this explain I will, this i will i am only reiterating what the argument was right now it's not a well explained argument so i don't want to add words to that argument because i will that that is what we will deal with in the course of this particular podcast but the argument in itself was that article 370 was a trunk was a temporary provision no doubt as as the indian constitution notes and that temporariness was meant to only be a bridge till such time at which the constitution of, of jammu and kashmir was in place and constitution of jammu and kashmir being in place now 370 has no role the relationship between jammu and kashmir and india has become ossified it is in in unchangeable and therefore jammu and kashmir retains sovereignty in a way in which no other state in the union retains and in fact all acts done under article 370 sub clause 1 were various parts of the indian constitution as i reiterated in my last in the last uh, part all those acts by presidential orders by which various parts of the indian constitution was was enacted and enforced in the state of jnk were all illegal that's one extreme form of that argument the milder form of that same argument was that whatever else you may have the presence of 370 
and it being allayed and always mentioning a constituent assembly and seeking consent to the state of JNK for any kind of forward movement of the Indian constitutional provisions into the state of JNK. Allied with the fact that the state of JNK had its own constitution, implies that the state of JNK had at least what is termed as residual sovereignty. And that residual sovereignty was an inherent and unshakable, unchangeable aspect of the manner in which the relationship of the dominion of India was established with the state of Jammu and Kashmir at the time of independence. And so therefore, all these acts that are being done on the 5th of April 2019 and 6th of April, uh, 6th, sorry, 5th of August 2019 and 6th of August 2019 are entirely contrary to this unchangeable residual sovereignty position. Right? So that's two separate positions relating to JNK sovereignty that were inherent to the counter -art. And I wanted to take this particular podcast to be very detailed about this because, in fact, if you look at the judgment itself, the judgment also devotes approximately 80 pages to just this purpose. What, what do they, Matab, uh, judgment uh, focuses on what is sovereignty conceptually? No. Well, yes, yes, it does and it must. But also, what was JNK's sovereignty? What was everybody's understanding at that time? What were the events that occurred? What were the various promulgations, proclamations, etc. that were passed? And how okay. did all of those people in a contemporaneous period of time deal with the concept of JNK sovereignty? Right? And then lastly, deal with the fact that 370 exists in the way in which it does. Does that in itself imply some kind of sovereignty? Or are there like provisions within the constitution that also establish some kind of asymmetric federalism? Which is reflective of the relationship with that particular state, but not not reflective of some kind of independent sovereignty. In effect, therefore, an argument raised by the petitioners that the actions of 5th and 6th August 2019 were violative of asymmetric federalism are used against them by the by the court at some point. And the court turns around and essentially says, in fact, 370 is an aspect of asymmetric federalism. And 370 has disappeared by its own terms. And that asymmetric federalism has now found its full state, full, full effect. Right? Unlike other provisions for other states, this is going to be an assertion on the court of the court and a finding of the court. The provision creating asymmetric federalism in the favor of Jammu and Kashmir was inherently extinguishable. Right? And so explain we come to the this. Ex explain this. What do you mean by inherently extinguishable? That it could be removed at any point in time. Asymmetric okay, so federalism means I have first and foremost given you a federal structure, right? This is why I had gone to Schedule 7 and shown you those three lists, right? But but federalism, sovereignty, etc., are not limited only to legislative sovereignty. They are also executive sovereignty. So there are articles in the constitution that say that your executive power extends as far as your legislative power. Now take any ordinary state in India. Let's take the example of Uttar Pradesh. Uttar Pradesh only has power to enact laws under list 2 of the constitution, which is the state list, or under list 3 of the constitution, which is the concurrent list. But I had explained the concurrent list means parliament also has power to enact on those subject matters. And if parliament enacts something, then your law must cannot be repugnant, that is inconsistent with the uh, parliamentary law 
And if it is in fact repugnant or inconsistent, then it must obtain presidential assent. And presidential assent means what? Effectively, the union government turns around and says, yeah, yeah, to you we will allow this, 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 this distinction because there is something peculiar in your state which your legislature has identified and you have enacted a law in this which is contrary to our general standard of a parliamentary law on the subject, but you are permitted this. Right? So therefore, even your permission to deviate from a central law in the, in the concurrent list is subject to actually center's permission. Right? So if you were to look at it in contractual terms, center always remains the strongest power. Simply. Okay. That so, but then, your... but then I have to come here. To, sorry, sorry, I have to ask you. Oh, no, if the center is is the strongest power, then how is it asymmetric? Isn't the center the strongest power in most cases? But that's exactly in what most... I'm pointing out. This is not the asymmetric example. This is the symmetric example. This is what yeah. applies to every state. Okay. But there are provisions which are special to certain states. And they create powers beyond this in certain states. As we go through the podcast, I'll discuss those. And that's the asymmetric. Right? Now, what the court will show to you in their findings. So today, I am recording mostly findings. I'm going to cover some of the submissions of the Union of India because they're important. But also findings of the court. Right? And the findings of the court are that yours was the, in JMK's case, yours was the only provision of asymmetric federalism which by its own terms could be extinguished. And which in, in the side note and the head note itself was termed as temporary, implying that it was always something that could have been removed. Therefore, extinguishable as I call it. Right? So let me start uh, with some of the submissions of the Union of India. And I'm going to be reading actually quite extensively from the judgment itself to quote what they quote, not to quote the judgment itself, because that I'm going to summarize for you as pithily as I can, but to quote what they quote, because they quote a lot of uh, uh, primary sources to talk about what the history was at that time. And yeah. my intention, therefore, is that in the course of this today, we will read a lot of the historical record of, and this is going to be of specific interest, and that's why I didn't want to overburden any listener beyond this today. It's going to be a specific interest of the mechanics of how independence was created. Right? You are at one point in time, and let's take this as the starting point. In your average understanding, or in the average under on the, in the understanding of the average citizen, the average listener, right, with no special knowledge on the subject, there is an understanding that there was British rule and then there was Indian. And the only thing that happened was Pakistan was created. Okay, and this is a very rudimentary understanding. That's what I want to first put to you. In fact, it was a very complicated situation because even British rule, as I had explained in part one, had certain states which were firmly British rule. But there were 562 princely states. Yeah. And these 562 princely states only had were only under the suzerainty of the British crown. Implying, therefore, that these particular states, in fact, had more legislative powers than those states which were firmly under British. 
And examples of this are Junagar, Hyderabad, JMK, Kashmir, uh, parts of Madhya Bharat, Kuch Bihar, etc. These were all states that were, because what, I mean, this will have to go back a little further in, in history. I think people will recall the doctrine of lapse. The doctrine of lapse was that if a princely state did not have a legal heir, right, their sovereignty lapsed into the British East, British East India Company. Is this like the vocab or statute of uh, limitations kind of in a different no, no. way? No, the statute of lapse is different. And you're forgetting, doctrine of lapse is different. You've forgotten this. This is part of what led to 1857. Rani Lakshmi Bai and others like her were those who were told that your princely states are going to be taken away from you. You will no longer be the ruler of that state because you have no heir. And so the British East India Company will control. So the trigger of this was eventually the famous pellet incident where the rumor was that they were greased with pig or, or cow fat. But the, the problem had began with the idea of the doctrine of lapse. And a number of princely states have been taken over. Now, the effect, I only mention this because now that they're taken over, they become British states. And there are a number of British states. And that is why when the constitution of India is enacted, in fact, does not call every state just a state. There are states of part one, part two, and part three. There are separate kinds of states, depending on their history. The short point being, we didn't just suddenly one day wake up and this territory was ours. Right? This entire history and story of Sadar Patel is what? It is exactly this. Chase down every princely state's instrument of accession. Where does the instrument of accession come from? That also comes from a legal document. These are not documents that are suddenly created by uh, the Indian state or the Dominion of India. Right? So let me go step by step. I will first, because we had finished off with the, but this is this is sort of, this, this introduction is the theme of today's part, today's episode, right? And then on the, in the third, I'll deal with the actual hard constitutional provisions and finish those off in one go because they will overlap with each other and it'll be very easy to deal with them all together. Fair enough. But this first half, part one, part two, they had so much on historical record, right? And part one also, what it does is it lays the foundation of what the constitutional arguments will be. Part 2 now will finish the historical record. That's my idea. And then part 3 will deal with the modern constitution as it is. And how, the, how you read a constitution. So three separate parts for that reason. So the Union of India basically starts by saying that there is nothing special or distinct in the way in which the constitutional integration of Jammu and Kashmir took place as compared with any other state. I'm reading, but these are my notes not reading any other, anyone else's documents, right? And they say this is in the form of the establishment, because again, these were princely states, a number of them. A number of them had other systems of governance. A number of them perhaps had chieftains. A number of them perhaps had even more microscopic local forms of government, right? If you ever do a podcast on devolution of power from center downwards, you could perhaps do a historical perspective on how India was actually micro-governed in many places. Uh -huh. And the British couldn't care beyond Lagan. Mm -hmm. Right? Which is why so many of your very positive and very negative cultural practices continued and survived throughout. 
In fact, the British did not interfere in the religious aspect all that much. They did not care. They just wanted to suck the up. Religious blood. aspect is one thing. It's it's one aspect. They also didn't actually interfere with the land aspect. A lot of the land riots and land grants are actually from an imperial era. Sorry, from a uh, monarchical era that is granted True. by the old kings. The British didn't really touch it too much because they didn't actually want to take control of too much land. They didn't need it. What they needed it for was garrisons and places like that and, and to build cities, so on and so forth. Beyond that, they didn't really need it. Because in the end, be, let's be clear about this. The British didn't rule us. We ruled ourselves, but the British were the ones in power. They ruled us through us. Their police was us. Their army was us. Their navy was us. We ruled ourselves, except without any conception of our own selves at that time. Uh, so, when I say democratization, what I mean is so much of the internal structure of those subunits, those federal subunits alters, it changes. If you were a monarchical structure, you will now be a democracy. If you were a chieftain-based structure or a, or, or a broadly subdivided form of governance, even within a larger subunit, you become more unified, you become more centralized. Right? Why? Because you are creating legislative assemblies. So you're creating federal units and you're creating legislative assemblies and these assemblies become the representation of what will eventually be the storehouse of the, so of the, of the sovereign power in India. And the storehouse of the sovereign power in India is the people of India. It is not the president of India, unlike a king in a monarchy. It is not the constitution. It is not parliament. It is the, will, it is the people of India. That's the first point, right? And the third thing that happens is the integration into the un union of the subunit. And in that regard, I had told you from the beginning, Article 370 also acknowledges this. Whatever else may be happening with Article 370, it is most definitely acknowledging Article 1 of the Constitution. And Article 1 of the Constitution of India makes you a subunit of India, makes you a state of India. Yeah. This is a fundamental point when it comes to sovereignty. Right? Anyway, Article 370 was then, they say, the union says, was designed to aid the constitutional integration process along the same line. And then this is very important. In sum and substance, let's put it this. If I were Uttar Pradesh or if I were any of those other states that existed at that point in time, right? The Constitution of India comes into force and the Constitution of India applies to me fully. I have no exceptions. I am integrated fully as per the Constitution of India. But JNK had a peculiarity. And what was this peculiarity? JNK had sat back for a while saying we need time to decide. They hadn't even said that we haven't, we aren't deciding or we're going to be independent. They said mm. we need time to decide. Yeah. So what they had gone and done was they had signed a standstill agreement. There are two kinds of agreements at the time of independence. There is an instrument of accession yeah. and there is a standstill agreement. The standstill agreement is literally what it says, which is thumbs up. Right? Uh, we are determining for ourselves. But then, but, but during the period of the standstill agreement, if you don't mind me, just out of uh, curiosity, I'm asking this. What would govern the area? The old system that existed. Oh, wow. There Marathi. is no cessation of sovereignty under the standstill agreement. Let's be crystal clear. It is literally to say, you, Mr. Pakistan, or you, Mr. India, you are sovereign states. Qua me be standstill right now. And both those countries say, yes, we will be. 
And here's the interesting bit. And tactically, such a flaw by Pakistan and such a brilliant thing by India. Pakistan signs a standstill agreement with Kashmir on 27th of September 1947. Oh, yeah, I remember this. I, I, I book. India refuses to sign a standstill agreement. <laughs> you would think logically that will imply that Kashmir should be worried about India invading because we refuse to sign a standstill. But in Kashmir, knowledge was clear. That standstill has been signed with, uh, with Pakistan. And a lot of historians say Nehru, in fact, cottoned on to this first. Nehru said the moment they signed the standstill, it is clear to me that they are going to invade. And letters start getting written to, uh, to Maharaja Hari Singh at that time. Anyway, I'm jumping because I'm getting very excited about all of this. So because this, this stuff of what happened around 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, how do you form states? How did the union form? It's it's endlessly interesting. The, the, the documentary precision of what the, what was done, conceptual and documentary precision of what, what was done at that time is frankly astounding. And the best thing about them is unlike our modern times, they weren't too wordy. Short, sharp, clear, precise documents. An instrument of accession is no more than four to five pages. Today, a simple modern contract that is drafted between two entities, which may be companies, runs into hundreds of pages. They were uniting nations in five pages, boss. Anyway, so the effect of what I was trying to say, why I deviated here was just to say that what was done for, say, Uttar Pradesh in one fell swoop, you became a part of the constitution, Khatam. 370 basically meant that the same thing will be done. This is the union submission. The same thing will be done, but it can be done over a longer period of time. And so there are various steps because the conditions in Kashmir were such. That is why I pointed to the fact that there was this accession issue. There was a standstill agreement. There was, again, war breaking out there. And that war actually lasted a year and a half. People don't realize this. The war starts sometime in October 47. It lasts through most of 48. And sometime in early 49, it finally comes to an end. In a proper sense. So, so in that period, you have a 370 is a necessity. That's what the union says. That this is meant to be a transitional thing. To ensure, and in that time, you've also lost a part of JNK. Because you've lost POK. What is modern POK? And so having lost that, at this moment at least, there is this conception that you can always bring it back. That you may have to integrate the whole. Also, there are these pending UN resolutions. You don't know what's going to happen with them. Perhaps Pakistan backs out of POK. And then we have to back out of, J of, of, of Indian JNK. And we unite the two and then you have a plebiscite. That could have happened. So with these temporary, with these kinds of problems in mind, 370 was meant to be something which will take you in a phased manner into the union. But the fact that you're going into the union is complete. And it is certainly complete. This is the union submission. On the day on which the constitution comes into force, which is 26th of January, 1950. Right? Uh, now they get into certain technical arguments and I want to take these technical arguments on because this will bring us back to the constitution and you'll be able to correlate to part one. And once I'm done with this, I'll come back to the historicity of the sovereign in one. Which is that they say that Article 370, as I said, was designed to be an integration process. It, that that this process has collapsed for other states and prolonged for JNK is of no materiality. The character or the power remains the same. 
you are nonetheless only integrating into the union, much as every other state has. In fact, like him, exactly like every other state. Article 370, subclause 1, subclause D. Can you pull up 370? Just keep 370 open. I think it will help people. Okay. I'll 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 open it. In it lies with you, the president who is to take stock of whether or not a provision or indeed all provisions require application in the state. So really, what they are going to drive through as a common theme through 370 is look, you as the petitioners keep talking about consents from the state government. But really, what are you talking about? These are words what are used in 370 are consent, are recommendation. These are non, uh, non-decisive language for a lawyer. Right? Decisive language is language of proclamation, language of resolution, language of vote must be in language setting out the uh, determination by which a vote must be effected to actually accept a thing or, or reject a thing. Right. So what the union says is counter to what you say that everywhere these consents are required. In fact, the import of Article 370 is that every single power is that of the president. The president is the sole repository of everything that needs to be done under 370. Let's take it the other way around. Let's say the union, the, the state of JNK's government or the state of JNK's legislative assembly, in fact, wanted certain provisions to apply to. Because it is a peculiarity of the JNK constitution that there is no Bill of Rights. And that is why it is not a serious constitution. It's a legislative exercise, not a constituent exercise. That's another See, argument. Any, any, any constitution that does not have a Bill of Rights is... It's garbage. not in fact a constitution. Yeah, it's garbage. That's, that's part of the argument, right? So, as I was saying, to, to come back to this, this short point on president being the holder of power, let's say the state government turns around and says, we want certain provisions to apply. You can keep demanding all you want. You can keep consenting all you want. You can keep recommending all you want. But if the president doesn't exercise his power, you don't get it. And so therefore, the yep. root power belongs to the president. And you are a ministerial ceremonial addition to that. Okay. So if over a 70-year period, your character keeps changing, your nature keeps changing, then eventually you dwindle to a point where you become OTOs. You become extinguished by your own acts. For example, the constituent assembly. That does not ossify the relationship. That will not freeze the president. Yes. Right? That's the, that's the nature of the argument. So, Article 370 is the only provision which is termed as temporary provision in the constitution. Others are termed as transitional or special. And I want to actually, just from the table of contents of the constitution of India, point this out. Part 21 is the part in which Article 370 exists. The heading of the part is very interesting. It used to at one time be only temporary and transitional provisions. After a point, it was amended to make it temporary, transitional, and special provisions. And I'm just going to read certain headings. Temporary power in parliament to make laws with respect to certain matters in the state list as if they were matters in the concurrent list. This is 369. This has nothing to do with any other state. It is to do with all states. This is a very peculiar circumstance. So the use of the word temporary here doesn't count to the larger argument that we are making. Now comes 370, temporary provision with respect to JNK. But now let's see 371. 
special provisions with respect, respect to state of Maharashtra and Gujarat. Special provisions with respect to Nagaland, then go on, Assam, Manipur, Andhra, uh, Central University of Andhra, sorry, state of Sikkim, state of Mizoram, state of Arunachal, state of Goa. These are all special provisions. Everything else, is, these are all special, only this is a temporary provision. That has to have some meaning. You have so, to accord so that. De, uh, de facto, all special provisions are temporary at, at a default position? That's a question that you cannot determine today. And if you go by the reasoning of this judgment, it's an excellent question. Because the context in which you can ask it is, can we tomorrow completely modify our relationship with the Northeast? Right? Yeah, or reservations, my, right? Reservations also are there special provision. You don't have to worry about it in the way in which you worried about 370 because 370 created this peculiarity of you will only be able to apply the constitution through 370. Whereas all those special provisions that I'm talking about does not mean the constitution does not apply to them. You can apply it, you can amend them as you would amend the constitution. Okay. Right. So whether they are temporary or not, they are as temporary as any other provision of the constitution. Subject to yeah. basic structure. Subject yeah. to basic structure. Article 370. This, so now what they, they create are these two sets of arguments uh, which say that, look, if you look at the way 370 actually operates, even the manner in which it operates, let's forget the language where it says temporary. Let's forget the language of the statute of, of the article itself. But the manner in which it is allowed to operate, this is something that is known to the Constituent Assembly. It is known to all the political leadership at the time. It is known to the Dominion of India at the time at which it is accepting JMK and, and, and enacting Article 370 in the Constitution. And the manner in which it operates actually creates a really bad kind of asymmetry. Right? And the bad asymmetry it creates is this. This, what it allows is, I'd read that particular judgment to you and, and read Article 370, Subclause 1D, which said that you have the power to apply any part of the Indian constitution into the state of JNK with modification. By executive order, by presidential order. Right? This one. And, and the one before. Oh, sorry. Yeah, this one. This one, this one. The one that I've as the president may by order specify, right? Yeah. To such exceptions and modifications. Now, what are these exceptions and modifications? I had given you an example last time of a judgment in which Article 81 of the Constitution was modified and indirect elections were happening for a while. Article mm -hmm. 81 of the Constitution, I'd like to just read it to show you how peremptory, how basic, how important this is. Composition of the House of the People. Subject to the provisions of Article 33, the House of the People shall consist of not more than 538 members. All of this as, as it was being applied to JNK, Composition of Council of States, Article 80. It, will, it, it would be different. Uh, duration of House of the Parliament and, and correspondingly 174. Sessions of the state legislature, prorogation, dissolution, all of this, when you apply it to JNK, you modify it. You, you, you make changes to it. Right? Mm. You are able to make changes to it of the sort, which perhaps will not pass muster if you made those changes in relation to any other state. But in the first event, 
you could only make those changes in relation to any other state through the power of amendment in the constitution which requires a certain specific procedure for passage through parliament here what are you mm -hmm. doing president gets along who is president at this moment in time is the union government plus council of ministers we've already done that yeah. that's been yeah. accepted in various judgments and in rab jawa kapoor downwards so what do you, what do you end up with you the union government sits down it writes an executive order and so all right we're going to remove this provision that provision this provision that provision we're going to apply it okay Hmm. And if you are doing that, then perhaps you can even do it to fundamental rights. You can take the freedom of speech and expression and add in even more restrictions in 192 in the context of JNK. Restrictions that you perhaps can't add in to the rest of the country because they may fall off our basic structure. Right. So what have you done? You are effectively telling us that Article 370 in your eyes, Mr. Petitioner, is so important, is so peremptory. is so basic is so essential that you will allow the union to place to have such extensive powers of constituent powers because these are powers of constitutional extension they're constituent powers such that you are elevating 370 and the union's power under 370 sub clause 1 sub clause b over and above even the basic structure over and above the power in 368 to amend the constitution it was inherently therefore understood by people that this these are emergency transitional things tra temporary things you need to do them for a while because there is a completely different form of government in place there and you need to start applying laws as and when situations demand so you're doing it in the most efficient way possible which is by an executive order instead of going through the whole route every single time in relation to the state because your legislative assembly is also not in place and there is far too much violence happening on your borders for us to be able to create that machinery that quickly So in that context, this was created. Now you're trying to make it seem like this is the only nature of your relationship, right? Yeah, but who's trying to claim that? Which side or petitioner? Petitioner. Yeah, because that may not be clear uh, clear to people listening to this. Uh, so the fact that the JNK Constitution does not contain a Bill of Rights, it deprives a set of citizens all rights guaranteed to others. Through Article Three Seventies One Subclause D, this was essentially made subject to the whim of the government of the day, a patently unconstitutional position. By whim of the government of the day means what? Tomorrow, if the government of JNK says, "Boss, please, you cannot extend any rights into our domain. Please don't extend other things into our state. They, they, they're too fundamental. We don't want them. This will create problems for us. We've got this sort of more tight government structure. We don't, we don't want it. What are you creating? You're creating an arbitrage." of rights a permanent arbitrage of rights between one state on the one hand and every other state on the other every other state in union territory on the other now then they said that unlike any other provision article 370 sub clause 3 is an inbuilt extinguishment procedure you want to just pull that up again just to refresh people's memories okay three we need to go down yeah here the president may by public notification declare that this article shall cease to be operative or shall be operative only with such exception and modification from such date as he may specify Right. So there is no other article that says you can extinguish me. 
you can make me inoperator hmm if you are inherently admitting within the text of the article that you can be made inoperative then it is within the contemplation of the time of the creation of the article that in fact it is a temporary provision and i see why i wanted to read this is how you interpret a constitution you don't just look at the language you give it more life right this this is what arguments in courts are about people say what do they go on for 3 days this is what we go on for 3 4 5 days yeah. Now, keep that keep that three seventy sub clause. Sorry, keep it up. Just keep keep that three seventy sub clause here. Okay, I'm down. This famous proviso, provided that the recommendation of the Constituent Assembly of the State referred to in Clause Two, shall be necessary before the President issues such a notice. This is the linchpin argument on one side, on the petitioner's side, that the Constituent Assembly doesn't exist. This makes this permanent. Yeah. And what is the union's answer to this? Union's answer to this is the provision of three seventy sub clause three was to remain in operation only for the duration of the state constituent assembly. Once the constituent assembly is gone, the provision is gone. You can't say that a recommendatory power of a body that exists and is created outside of the Constitution of India, which is the state, the JNK uh, constituent assembly. Which then extinguishes itself by its own terms and is not extinguished by the Constitution of India. Will, in a mere recommendatory power, have the capacity to limit the President's capacity to act under Part Three, where, uh, under under Clause Three, where the President's power in itself is clearly inherent, plenary, and is in fact the main source of the power here at all. In other, in very simple terms, you're putting the cart before the horse. If the cart doesn't exist, the horse can still run. Got it. State Constituent Assembly made no recommendations with respect to Article Three Seventy. Could have made various suggestions of freezing the relationship and asserting its sovereignty. It could have said various things. It could have said, "Remove these provisos or remove this particular power of the president. Please do all of this. We want Three Seventy to look." Just to make sure that what we have created today, the constitution, is the only thing that will exist from here on. But you don't do that. You don't do that in your particular document. And and this starts the argument of saying, from conception within JNK to documentary evidence that creates that gets created over time, there is never a conception of JNK sovereignty. Effect of the dissolution of state constituent assembly is not the permanence of Article Three Seventy Sub Clause Three. Rather, it is the cessation of the proviso. It ceases to have effect because the constituent assembly is gone. Means you are gone. There is no effect of the proviso. Hmm. If that argument is fully accepted, and it is a very forceful argument in my view, then in fact you did not even need the state legislative assembly's consent, or in other words, Parliament's consent acting as a state legislative assembly. You remember that. Chacha, what yeah, yeah. you are thinking? Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So you didn't even need that then. The president could simply have issued an order. If this are, and this is a very forceful argument in my view, if it were fully accepted, right? The steps of fifth and sixth August two twenty nineteen reflected the will of the people of the whole nation through Parliament and the Union government. When you keep talking about the will of the people, for some reason you place the will of the people as you interpret it in relation to the state of JNK over and above everyone else. Whereas, admittedly, this is an aspect of federalism. 
and in its aspect of federalism it really you know right no border state should be heard everybody should be heard every state should be heard and that's effectively what was done because parliament speaks for everyone the presidential yeah, power sorry no i said ideally the parliament should speak for everyone oh, look look let's not get into the weaknesses of our politics and confuse that with legitimacy issues of the constitution the legitimacy of the constitution is clear that it legitimizes parliament as the will of the people as expressing the will of the people right now we may not always like it we may not always agree with it but my experience parliamentarian politicians seem to know much more about the country than us sitting in our living rooms absolutely presidential power under article 370 cannot be curtailed by the fact that a body of body external that's i just made that point if the non existence of the state constituent assembly makes 370 permanent and effectively executive orders can be used to amend even to draconian extend the constitution of india and apply it to jnt therefore article 370 stands even above the basic structure which is an absurdity i just gave you that example that you can literally take the constitution of india go coach your horses through it and say through article 370 sub clause 1d This very draconian version of the Constitution of India will apply to JNK. In fact, that's when JNK will be running back and saying, "Oh my God, what's happened?" Because the state government will agree, but the citizenry will not. And that, what happens then? Then, then in fact, under even the Indian conception, the Union's conception, sovereignty is lost because sovereignty at the time at which the Constitution of India is adopted is not merely sovereignty of the people of India, absent the people of JNK or absent the people of princely states. but inclusive of them every single one of them is also constituent of the body called the people of india and so therefore their will is also expressed in the constitution so there is an overlapping yes. so this idea that the people the people of jnk only express their political will through the state constituent assembly's uh, constitution is incorrect they also do so because the instrument of accession predates the constitution of india got right. it Got it. Just that point in Article three seventy is sub clause three is proviso that even the constituent assembly's power, provided that the recommendation of the constituent, it's a recommendatory power. You cannot elevate this power to become an enforceable power. It's extremely what we call as directory language and not mandatory language. You may make so a this, recommendation. I may disagree. So it's is it like power the directive mind? principles? Sorry. is it like well, directive uh, the directive principles are even further away directive principles are non justiciable which in other words you can't challenge an act based on them they are said to be a larger thematic goal that the state wants to achieve and having read some of these directive principles if you read them in the light in which they were initially drafted please be glad that they are not enforced <laughs> because there's a lot of trotskyite bullshit in there well uh, indians were always you know no, but you got you're going to you're going to over the course of this podcast i think you'll you'll acquire a lot of admiration for what was done and people in in charge of that time so the placement of the state so effectively what happens is this i have already they they're already making the argument that once the constituent assembly is gone that proviso is gone yeah right or they are saying in any event you were recommendatory at best there's nothing more you're you're really not a not very material to the exercise of the power of 370 subclause 
But we nonetheless replaced the State Constituent Assembly with the State Legislative Assembly with an amendment to Article 367, subclause 4, only to democratize the decision of the President. Otherwise, it is not essential. Right? Got it. <clears throat> Parliament has to exercise power of the State Legislative Assembly because of the proclamation under 356, because of the importance of the state and national sovereignty and territorial integrity. All and every federal unit needed to have a say. Every single federal unit needed to have a say. And State Constituent Assembly was only exercising legislative power, not constitutional power. This is very, very important. That constitution of JNK, when it gets analyzed, essentially doesn't even read like a constitution is the answer that they are giving. It effectively, maybe you may call it a constituent what? You may call it a constituent yeah. document. You may call it a constitution. But essentially, it's a piece of legislation. Maybe an overarching piece of legislation for you. But in the context mm. of your relationship with India, it is merely legislative. So, so basically, the crux is that the government says this is not a constitution. There was a specific time and place that needed. So we use the word special provisions. And uh, now we don't need provision, not special provision. No, don't make that. Don't make that mistake. Special provision is for everyone else. That's a more okay. permanent provision. Temporary provision because you need to create a bridge and get through certain circumstances. Okay. And, and now we that, don't need to do. We could have collapsed all of this in five years. Instead of that, we waited. And now we're collapsing it over 75 years. Yeah. And basically, this was the government's way of saying, son, your time's up. That's, That's it. it. That's it. I, I The power I've always had, I'm exercising today. Hmm. Now, there's a couple of points that I had made in part one in any event, at least not just by implication, but directly. And I just want to come back to them because they're important. Article 367 has previously been used to modify Article 370. We'd seen one judgment in which it had been used to modify Article 370. right? Because the argument was, you cannot effectively amend Constituent Assembly and make it State Legislative Assembly provided to Article 370 by making a change in the interpretation clause and saying a word will not mean what it means, it will mean something else. So that's what they did. In 367.4, they suddenly come around and say, this is your CO 272, Constitutional Order 272, that look, at the end of the day, State Legislative Assembly will be effectively the Constituent Assembly. You you can't really do that is what the petitioners say. These guys turn around and say, no, it's always been done. It's always been done. So we're doing it again. And what gives us the power? Article 370 subclause 1 says, I can make aspects of the Indian Constitution uh, Enforceable against you, enforceable in your in relation to your state, right? And I can do so with any exceptions and modifications. So the modification I'm making to Article 367 is I am inserting a new definition. There's a flaw in this argument. In my flaw is you're not taking 367.4 and making it enforceable in JNK. You're make, taking 367.4 and making it enforceable in the Constitution of India. Now, it may affect JNK, but it is not the same as the power that are exercised in 370 subclause 1, subclause, sub, sub, 370 subclause D, subclause, subclause 1, subclause D. Let me explain this again. When I take provisions of the Constitution of India, like Article 135, 139, various other, which, are, which sort of talk about how legislative assemblies will be formed, and I say I am 
ipso facto applying them into the state of JNK through Article 370, subclause 1, subclause D, that means they become a part of the law of JNK. Right? Yeah. 367 subclause 4 is not being applied into JNK. It does not become a part of the law of JNK. It becomes a part only of the law of the Constitution of India. So this 370 subclause 1 subclause the argument is nice to hear, but it's not actually a valid argument. It's, it's not a correct position of fact. But eventually the Constitution of India applies to JNK. That comes later. We are right now determining the process by which you enforce the Constitution of India against. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Fair enough. I, I concede. These incidents may events may be one or two, one or two hours apart, but they are important in their sequencing. Yeah. Right? And so the sequencing that happens is first a proclamation under 356. So therefore, state becomes state government becomes governor, president, uh, through president governor, legislative assembly becomes parliament. Right? Then CO272 was passed by parliament. Hmm. But that is as a recommendation as the state legislature. Not as parliament per se, but as state legislature. Hmm. Otherwise, they had no role in that CO. They, rec they, they accept that CO. President actually makes the CO. They just accept it. What does that CEO do? That creates an amendment in 270, in, in 367.4. But you will have a problem now. You, the problem will be this. Section 147 of the JNK Constitution says you can't, as the legislative as, uh, uh, assembly of JNK, amend the Indian Constitution. But why not? Because the JNK constitution says so. The JNK legislative assembly cannot amend the Indian constitution. It's a logical proposition. So there are flaws. That's what I'm just trying to point out, right? Like this was the last of the arguments. Uh, the state legislative assembly continues to exercise. So this is the other argument. And this, I think, is the is the core argument, a good argument, a solid argument, which says that you guys have made this UN cry. That, oh my God, constituent assembly had constituent power and legislative assemblies only have legislative power. And so you are replacing a constituent body with a legislative body and they are not at parity with each other in a constitutional conception. And therefore, you have created a fraud on the constitution. Those are the words used by the petitioners, right? And I, even in part one, I had indicated here, and this is the short answer to this, is very simple. The constituent assembly of India I'm talking India, not JNK right now. The uh -huh. Constituent Assembly of India created the Indian Constitution. Correct? That's a constituent power. The Parliament of India has proceeded to take that Constitution and amend it 120 times. Yes. They are also therefore exercising a constituent power. If they were Absolutely. not in fact exercising constituent power, they could not have amended the Constitution. Similarly, Absolutely. the JNK Assembly has the power to amend the JNK constitution. So they also have constituent power. Yeah. So the body that you have used to replace definitionally the state of JNK, the constituent assembly in the provider to article 370 subclause 3 is another current body which has constituent power. So the center is right now, legally. 
your problems will come as you go along because now you're doing all of this in the environment of Article 356. So it's not actually the state legislature which is doing any of this at all. It's you who's no. doing everything. That bridge will be crossed when we get there. I'm not going to go further, but I'm just trying to explain what the thought process is. Right? I'm just, this is first principles of the judgment. But our judgment starts, the analysis and findings start. And they actually begin this by the first heading. And the first heading that they come up with is actually very good the way they did it. But first, they set up, outlined the issues. The issues that they would determine. And you'll find this in paragraph 66. I want to very quickly just read these so that people have a point of reference. But they can always look these up. It's very easy to locate. Uh, they set up five issues. Uh, sorry, no. They set up uh, eight issues. Whether the provisions of Article 370 were temporary in nature or whether they acquire a status of permanence in the Constitution. We've discussed this many times, but this is not the first issue. Yeah. Whether the amendment to Article 367 in exercise of the power under Article 370, subclause 1D, be very mindful of this language. What am I saying? 367, Article 367 of the Constitution is not amended through Article 368 of the Constitution. What is Article 368 of the Constitution? The power by which you amend the Indian Constitution. You have amended Article 367 and exercised the power under Article 370, subclause 1, subclause D, which means what have you amended? You have amended 367 through those executive orders, through that presidential order. And so this amendment only applies to JN. So I, earlier when I was talking about it being an Indian constitutional amendment, I was, I was wrong on that. Mm -hmm. So as to substitute the reference of the Constituent Assembly of the State in Clause 3, by the way, Legislative Assembly of the State is constitutionally violent. That's the question. Right? Whether the entire Constitution of India could have been applied to the state of Jammu and Kashmir and exercise the power under Article 371, sub clause D, this is that question of is there application of mind if you apply the entirety without applying parts? Whether the abrogation of Article 370 by the President and exercise of the power under 370 subclause D is constitutionally valid in the absence of recommendation to constituent assembly? This is a question we've been raising repeatedly. Whether the proclamation of the governor in 20th June 2018 and exercise of the power conferred by Section 92, where I'd said initially that on 20th June, 19th June, Mehbooba Mufti, they, they withdraw power, they withdraw support, BJP withdraw support from Mehbooba Mufti, 19 June 2018. And on 20th June 2018, under Section 52 of the Constitution of JNK, the governor takes over the power of the state government. Whether this was a valid exercise of power or not. Okay. And then the consequent dissolution of the assembly on 21st November 2018, whether this was validly done or not. Whether the proclamation was issued by the President under Article 356 of the Constitution on 19 December and subsequent extensions, whether these are constitutionally valid. Right? Whether the Jammu and Kashmir Reorganization Act, that we, we are sort of not covering here because really even the court doesn't go much into it. Whether the tenure of the proclamation under 356 and when the legislative assembly, legislative assembly of the state is either dissolved or is in suspended animation, the status of the Jammu, state of Jammu and Kashmir as a state under Article 13 of the Constitution and its conversion into union territory constitutes a valid exercise of power. Again, more about reorganization, we'll stay away from that. But here's where they start. They start with the state of Jammu and Kashmir did not possess sovereignty. That's their fight. Right? And how do they do this? 
very interesting. They look at various elements. They look at the history of the state uh, of the documents between the various uh, that that were that was enacted and promulgated various times in that relevant period from about forty six onwards till about nineteen fifty one. In fact, fifty seven when the JNK Constitution comes in. Uh, This is where the, they first start with a definition of sovereignty. And this, has, I mean, I think you'll be able to interdict a lot in this because you're a student of philosophy. But sovereignty is first classified as internal sovereignty and external sovereignty. Internal in what sense? Not second. External sovereignty is sovereignty qua other nations right and the argument of the petitioners is that article 1 and the inclusion of jnk in article 1 is only a facet of external sovereignty in other words it is only a messaging to the nations of the world that jammu and kashmir is an integral part of india but the inclusion of Jammu and Kashmir as an integral part of India in the first schedule, read with Article 1, does not imply that the internal sovereignty of Jammu and Kashmir stood out. And what is internal sovereignty? Internal sovereignty is legislative sovereignty. Okay. Right? Legal sovereignty exists when a body has unlimited or unrestricted legislative power and when none other is superior to it. This is the simplest definition. Constitutions can limit the content of laws, but they will still establish the primacy of a body or group as the ultimate repository of legislative power. Okay. Right? What do constitutions do? Constitutionalism is a mechanism devolved because of centuries of human experience, especially when Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau propounded their various theories, you needed liberalism to have a say in a binding manner. Right? And liberalism in the way in which they meant it then. I'm not talking about liberal versus conservative in today's date. But liberalism as they meant it then. What was liberalism in that context? It was to say the rights of the, of the individual will prevail. Those theories had to be given legal effect. So the mechanism was constitutionalism. But the constitution will now come and tell you something that has never been told to you before. Because before this, the king was ordained by God. Whether in the Christian, Christian world or, whether in, or, or in India. You had a proximate relationship to God. You were ordained by God and you could therefore take exercise any power whatsoever. There may be various injunctions placed upon you which were moral injunctions, okay, which were injunctions of wisdom, but they were not actual restrictions on your power. Okay. Right? What do I mean by that? I mean, you may have various shlokas and various smritis that say a good king should act this way, or you may have Chanakya that says good king must act this way, but none of that is actually an injunction of law that stops your power. Okay. You're the king, and if you bloody well don't want to be a good king, you have every power to not be a good king. Okay. But once a constitution comes into place, you have no absolute power. 
the limits of your power are defined by the constitution. Okay. Okay. That means I as a citizen of freedom of speech and expression, yes, you can limit my free speech and expression, but when you pass that law, it has to meet certain criteria which the constitution itself provides. It has to be a reasonable restriction and it has to be in furtherance of one of the limitations placed over there. And if it travels beyond any of these, you in fact didn't have the power. Doesn't matter whether you call yourself parliament, doesn't matter whether you call yourself president, doesn't matter what you call yourself, Sheikh Chilli or all like. Okay. You don't have that power. Got so it. content of lawmaking, constitutions can restrict but the sole authority who has the power to make that law does not change. Got it. And that authority is absolute in its legislative domain. That is a Ye sovereign so That is Ye a sovereign so Right? I'm going to read, because what they did was, they made certain reference to uh, a book by Lester Orfield, uh, uh -huh. the amending of the federal constitution. And I wanted to just read this paragraph from the judgment itself because they they, they tend to put a lot of uh, onus on it, but I'm going to read two parts here. Okay. The emphasis of the unlimited nature of the power available to a body has diminished with the development of international law and other modern limits of the exercise of power. That's what I was just telling you. You were a king, you had unlimited power. Forget about unlimited power. Now you don't have unlimited power. You're, you're curtailed by a constitution. You're curtailed by your treaties. You're curtailed by international international laws. You're curtailed by all of these things. Uh -huh. While the expression sovereignty was previously understood to mean that the sovereign could enact any type or form of law in exercise of sovereign power, right? I'm unfettered. I'm the king. I can do anything I want. Modern legal systems limit the nature of the laws that can be enacted yes. by constitution or other interdicts. Hence, okay. the aspect of sovereignty which requires no subordination to another body is of greater significance as compared to the traditional aspect that requires power to be unlimited. Your power is limited, but you are not subordinate to it. You are Parliament okay. of India. Or you can enact, only you can enact. Nobody else can enact. Got it. Right? You are, par you are, you are Parliament of India. You can tomorrow alter the laws on which the state, the subjects on which the states can enact. So the states are in fact subordinate to you, even though they have complete legislative power over entries in list two. But tomorrow you, Parliament of India, under Article 368, can change list two. Got it. Right? So the state may be given, given sovereign power of legislation in certain spheres, but it is not sovereign. Because it is always subordinate to you. Hmm. And within the state itself, so much of your central made law applies. So much of the law that you make in the concurrent list applies. Right? Now I'm going to read that bit from Orfield. The meaning of sovereignty elucidated in the preceding paragraph is descriptive not of external sovereignty, but internal sovereignty. That I've just explained. The former is commonly understood... The, the former is commonly understood to mean the independence of a nation in relation to other nations, whereas the latter is the relationship of the sovereign within the state to the individuals and associations within the state. External and internal sovereignty are not entirely distinct concepts, but are different facets. They have gradually come to be regarded as two sides of the same coin. 
Dicey's comment is evidently with reference to internal sovereignty because the unrestricted power to make laws concerns individuals and associations within a state as opposed to the relationship between two states. Now, Orfield undertook a study of the literature of the subject of sovereignty. The study listed five characteristics of internal sovereignty. One, it exists as a matter of fact or as a matter of fact in law. So the law of a state need not be not necessarily recognized. It must recognize the sovereignty. Sovereign power is absolute in that a law may be passed on any subject within that within the limits of the constitution. On that subject, I can pass any law. It is indivisible. What I have as parliamentary power cannot be given to anyone. That is my law. Right? The law passed by the sovereign need not be enforced in particular cases if the sovereign so chooses. The legal sovereign is determinate. It may be a single person or a group of persons. And they end this by saying, in India, sovereignty rests in the people of India. Fair. Right? The, pre the preamble to the Constitution of India says, we the people hereby adopt. Right? So therefore, that gives you your sovereignty. <laughs> now, they do this very well. They say, look, okay, so we say we the people of India, and so therefore sovereignty rests in the people of India and under the Indian constitution. But was that really the case? Because at the end of the day, and this is maybe an argument, a, a set of historical records, I wanted to read this and, and explain this because often, like this is a very common trope on social media. that this is not an Indian constitution. Yeah? This is a constitution adopted by westernized elites and forced upon us. Right? But that is not correct. Because they first go to what was the composition of the Constituent Assembly. And the Constituent Assembly was created through proportional representation of the states. That is, for in every state, one seat on the Constituent Assembly for one million of population. Within that quota, you had to divide proportional representation of the main communities of that particular state. So if Uttar Pradesh, say, has 50 or 30, whatever it is, and it wouldn't have been Uttar Pradesh at that time, it would have been United Provinces, it would have been Madras Presidency itself. If you had 30 or you had 50, you had to divide that 30 or 50 in proportionate terms to the main communities of your state. This is hardcore consociationalism. As much division of power as you could possibly have. Right? And when it came to and representations of allotted to representations allotted to each community shall be elected by members of only that community. So if I'm going to be a representative of a particular community within that larger state's quota. I am not being voted on by everyone else. I'm being voted on only by my community. That's consociationalism, classic consociationalism. We can discuss consociationalism as the podcast continues. It might be a we we did discuss this uh, concept in one of our previous podcasts. I don't remember which one, but I think we did talk about uh, uh, consociationalism. I forgot which podcast was in, but it You can perhaps link it from your show notes. Uh, so the Constituent Assembly eventually had 389 members and eventually, before it disbanded, before the constitution was adopted, it had four members from JM. It, 
over and above the constituent assembly you had an advisory committee comprised only of various minority groups both religious minority groups and tribal minority groups to advise on clauses for the due protection of minorities after that in february 1948 a draft constitution was made public and comment was invited from all members of the public and civic bodies right and so only after all of this was done that on the 26th of november 1950 it was signed only to come into force on january 2619 hmm right so it is as representative a document as could have been done at that point in time now along with that nonetheless the constituent assembly members recognize that this document although we have tried to make it as representative as possible and for that reason by a country mile the longest constitution in the world the most comprehensive document in the world in terms of a constitutional document and perhaps sometimes just too long and too difficult right but still brilliantly workable it's it's actually a, it's a masterpiece it's an absolute masterpiece but they kept the amending power under 368 actually quite simple for most of it including the fundamental rights we covered this during the basic structure podcast it's actually very mm-hmm. easy amendment power you're literally amending it like you're passing a law but because is that how like, it's supposed to be not always no i'm sorry you, you don't amend the american constitution that easily completely different conception of a constitution there here it was a completely different conception so the idea was that as future generations come coming to be and grow you have this uh, rather big issue that we perhaps have not seen through everything they may require new things second the level of education of the uh, people is going to change right their conceptions are going to change they shouldn't be bound to what we have done and so it will evolve and that's why it's a highly amended constitution as well and so that's why they say that this was really as representative a document as you could have had now for the purpose of this on page 66 of the judgment they set up what they call as the questions that they will consider to adjudicate whether or not jnk had sovereignty and the way they phrase it is this the question which is being considered by the court when it adjudicates whether jammu and kashmir retained sovereignty is twofold first did the state of jammu and kashmir retain sovereignty as distinct from its people if not is the exercise of sovereign power by the people of jammu and kashmir different from the exercise of sovereign power by the citizens of india who reside in different states the answer to these and related issues will have to be understood in the context of historical elements and then draw out historical elements but you understood these questions right the first question was that the state of jammu and kashmir retain sovereignty as distinct from the people so is this entity different from its people but that's a, a controversial way of looking at it right so we are saying in the context of the constitution of india there is no question of there being any sovereignty outside of the people but was that the case with jmk second if not is the exercise of sovereign power by the people of jammu and kashmir different from the exercise of sovereign power by the citizens of india in other words when the people of jmk are affording to themselves a constitution are they acting as different sovereigns from us which is the remainder of the people of india and for this they start drawing out a massive historical record and they start from 1834 or our saying 
the general commanding the army of gulab singh the maharaj of jammu invaded ladakh blah blah it's all sort of just basic historical record but i speak of the treaty of lahore which was executed between the maharaj of lahore and the british government resulting in the transfer of certain territories to the east india company and this becomes important why are they doing this this is really showing to you who is in charge at what point in time oh which territory right and what does being in charge mean that's really the set of explorations that are being done and following the treaty of lahore the british government entered into the treaty of amritsar the treaty of amritsar most of what we call kashmir now stands transferred to maharaj gulab singh who is maharaj gulab singh maharaj gulab singh is the predecessor in interest of maharaj hari singh and of yuvraj karan singh and maharaj hari singh and yuvraj karan singh are two of the most important characters in this entire especially karan singh absolutely especially karan singh absolutely correct now something very interesting that i think a lot of people wouldn't know british parliament on the 30th of august 1889 because in 1857 the queen takes over from east india company they set about passing an act called the interpretation act of 1889 and this relates to their entire territories right and so the exercise they undertake is defining what is india right and so what they say is british india comprises of all territories and places within her majesty's dominions which are for the time being governed by her majesty through the governor general of india now there were i've been repeatedly telling you this there were parts of india that were being directly governed by the governor general and there are parts of india where the governor general is not directly governing but what they say is that the term india was defined in section 185 as british india together with any territories of native prince or chief under the suzerainty of her majesty exercised to the governor general of india so there is a the concept of suzerainty suzerainty is essentially just saying i recognize you as my superior but you will not interfere in how i govern my state yeah this is like during the old times the chota raja would acknowledge the bada raja so this is I not dissimilar to this is not dissimilar to the rajputs qua the moguls right <clears throat> now on 22nd of april 1934 this is maharaja hari singh comes to power in 27 1927 now in jnk at that point in time a natural democratization is starting to occur because as you can imagine there is a big difference between jammu and kashmir as it stood even now and then and the problem is when people conceive of jammu and kashmir they only think of the kashmir valley and they start talking about kashmir as if it is purely muslim not recognizing that jammu is a part of kashmir jammu and kashmir ladakh was a part of jammu and kashmir and so therefore it was in fact an amalgamation of different religions very diverse in that sense in from a religious sense so there were a lot of movements that were occurring and in fact what is called as the national congress conference today was first initiated by sheikh abdullah as the muslim uh, as the uh, all kashmir muslim conference he had first conceived this as being an opposition of muslim uh, subjects against the king but over time he realized religion is not material here. and he named it the national conference and it's named the national conference well before independence 
right? So there is no conception of religion as being a dividing factor. And in fact, as and when partition occurs, this little, this, this thing, this divining rod that everybody takes to be sacrosanct, and oh my God, Muslim area was supposed to go to Pakistan. Kashmir was a Muslim area. Why didn't it go to Pakistan? Because Kashmir never conceived of itself as a Muslim area. And this is repeatedly said in their constituent assembly. This is repeatedly said in their documents and their statements. In any event, I'm going to go forward. Now, the Maharaja had sovereignty over... Uh, now, he, he establishes because of these particular problems that are happening within his state. He does something quite incredible. He establishes what is called the Praja Sabha. Now, whenever I am talking about these bodies, everybody should keep in mind the original concept of internal sovereignty that I've spoken about. Right? You have to have total and absolute control over your legislative power. That's your internal sovereignty. And what starts happening is, in Kashmir, that internal sovereignty starts moving slowly, slowly, from the Maharaja to what is this Praja Sabha. The Praja Sabha is effectively a forerunner of the Legislative Assembly. Got it. But, the Maharaja still retains sovereignty over all matters, legislative, executive and judicial, except those delegated to the Praja Sabha. But even a law passed by the Praja Sabha does not become law, does not come into force until the Maharaja stands. Now, in the context of an Indian democracy, president is supposed to stamp a law and president does have some powers of returning a law. But if the law comes back twice, the president has to sign it. The president of India does not have a veto power like the US president. This particular Maharaja situation was slightly different. If you can pass as many laws as you want in the Praja Sabha, if he doesn't stamp it, it's not becoming any. Now, under the now comes the Government of India Act of 1935. Now, Government of India Act 1935, very interesting. Let's say, I mean, the Constitution of India is forerunner. It a lot of the Constitution of India comes from the Government of India Act. But most importantly, when the Government of India Act is enacted, you have some contest between historians, right, who say that the Government of India Act's enactment was essentially the first step towards independence. You had to be, you had to become independent of the GOI came, came into force. Now it was like a baseline, a baseline to a baseline. build upon. It's a, it's a necessary step towards that process, right, because it's a, it's a constitutional document in a sense. It's, it's devolving, starting to devolve things. Problem that happens is World War II happens. And then the English decide, now we've got to hold on again because India, we, we need the manpower, we need the resources. But World War II doesn't concern us today. The Government of India Act of 1935, then, first and foremost, JNK is not a part of British India. What I've been saying earlier, in their Interpretations Act, they define what is British India. JNK is not a part of British India. It is a princely state. It would require an instrument of accession true of all princely states. So, in the Government of India Act for the first time, comes the concept of an instrument of accession. That conception is already started. Right? And in fact, the judgment sets this out. That in Section 5, Provided for the proclamation of the Federation of India. Section 6 enabled the ruler of an Indian princely state 
to execute an instrument of accession declaring that he acceded to the Federation of India subject to the terms of the instrument. And this is what eventually gets executed. So this understanding comes very early on. Very early on. And where does it come from? It comes from the very interesting idea of Paramountsi. Paramountsi is a very interesting idea. Paramountsi is linked in, intrinsically to the idea of suzerainty. Suzerainty and Paramountsi go hand in hand. I am, I am, I have a relationship of suzerainty with you, implying that you are paramount to me. Therefore, Paramountsi from your perspective, right? Right. And what that means is that when British India leaves, when the British leave India, when they say this is our cutoff date, we are gone, their paramountcy lapses. And when their paramountcy lapses, that means those princely states become completely independent states on that, in that moment. Of course, that is not good for either India or Pakistan. And in 1935, uh -huh. there's no conception of Pakistan. In the concept of India, with India thinking, what the hell? What do you mean they become independent? Now I have to go around chase everybody and try to bring them back in. So for the longest time, the idea was when you leave, you create a territorial integrity. We are just taking over the territory. That's what the Congress was trying to say. But the British said legally, it can't be done. Because we don't have anything more than suzerainty over these. Once we leave, it is only a natural fact that there is no vacuum. They must develop a relationship with you and accept your dominion. Otherwise, yeah, you would be suppressing yeah, it's either they pick Pakistan or India, and when they came under India, eventually these things have to fall but, in place. But theoretically, first and foremost, on the day on which the British leave, you are independent. Yeah, until the signing of the instrument of accession. That's right. That's right. Now, in 1939, the JNK Constitution Act is enacted. That's when the democratization properly begins. Now the Maharaja is nice enough to elect a Prime Minister and a Council of Ministers to advise him. I, I don't know how much of a shit Maharaja gave about them, but, you know, he enacted them and he put them into place. He also establishes the High Court. So now he's also getting rid of his judicial function. And the High Court is established as a court of record to, to look at suits and various other proceedings. Right? Now this is a very interesting thing. The state of JNK had a Prime Minister till 1965. In 65, the Sixth Amendment of the JNK Constitution was enacted, and then it starts becoming sounding like a state, like any other ordinary Indian state. So there's a chief minister, there's a legislative assembly, and so on. And so on. But what I'm trying to point out is that at least the legislative assembly bit was already starting to take root, even in their even in their internal structure in JNK. <laughs> now. The Constituent Assembly on the 22nd of January 1947 passes what is called the Objectives Resolution. Please do not confuse this with the Pakistani Objectives Resolution of 1948, which is the Objectives Resolution that eventually led to the destruction of this country. You can Google it and you can read, or that country. You can, you can read about it and see what the Objectives Resolution there was. But the Objectives Resolution of 22nd January 1947 in India, first said, territories acceding to the sovereignty of India. They were listed out. Then, acceding territories may retain an extent of autonomy subject to the provisions of the Constitution of India. That means the Constitution is still supreme, but it's only the Constitution of India which is giving you that autonomy. Then, sovereignty of India would be was derived from its people as a whole, thus uh, including the people of princely states as well. Not only of the states that were otherwise a part of the Governor General's domain. Right? And 
para 7 again was reiterative of people's sovereignty so this idea is now starting to take root constitutionalism and it's called democratization at its core in on 3 june 1947 just a few months later this is just before independence and things now start heating up uh the mountbatten plan is enacted which says princely states will either pick either india or pakistan but the mountbatten plan makes it clear from the british perspective once paramountcy lapses princely states are independent this is an important part of this because if princely states are independent and kashmir in fact retained its independence and kashmir was in fact sovereign and that will have a bearing on your findings here right yeah. so with, how with, does which is why i just want to add a point here which is why sardar patel is great oh you just wait for it you're going to see how great you're going to see how many games he plays right so uh on the 18th of july 1947 british parliament enacted the indian independence act section 61 says if you sign the instrument of accession you have acceded to the relevant dominion whether it is the dominion of india or the dominion of pakistan now what this means is that if if you don't sign it then what then you are actually allowed to be independent yeah by this time obviously the constituent assembly is in place and it is it is uh, deliberating a constitution for india uh but i want to read certain paragraphs of this uh 22nd january which i had referred to the objectives resolution of the constituent assembly right because this becomes the constitution and this becomes important because what this outlines now is what is the effect of accepting an, uh, an instrument of accession because we're dealing it's a matter of the question of sovereignty right where are the territories that now comprise british india the territories have not, that now form the indian states and such other parts of india as are outside british india and the states please understand there is an india outside british india and the states british india and the states are automatically going to be a part of india but that part which is outside of both british india and the states that can go anywhere as well as such other territories as are willing to be constituted into the independent sovereign india shall be a shall be a union of them all so the only sovereign entity will be india right and now they say and this is what i said earlier where in the set territories whether they are present boundaries or with such others that may be determined by the constituent assembly and thereafter according to the law of the constitution shall possess and retain the status of autonomous unit together with residuary powers and exercise all now you are an autonomous unit perhaps the power and authority of a sovereign independent india its constituent parts and organs of government are derived from the people this is what they were saying so the sovereign entity was supposed to be india and this the government the, the court says this fact that you were now going to enter into a so relationship where you lose your sovereignty and your sovereignty becomes comes into the hands of the dominion of india is a thing that every princely ruler understands because every princely ruler understands one simple thing their entire life is their sovereignty and that is what they are being asked to give away now if you sign the instrument of accession you go with india it makes sense to you to go, for, go with india you therefore you you are done as the sovereign now 
the CWC had said we don't want this Paramount C rubbish, but there was really nothing that came of it. Now, what happens, and this is this is where the wisdom starts rolling in, right? This is still before independence. This is 27th of June 1947. Sadar Patel sets up what he calls the State's Department. And his idea is this is and he and he puts it very nicely, very politely, as he always did. Uh that it would be advantageous if the government of India were to set up a new department, possibly called the States Department, to deal with the matter of common concern with the states. That if this were done, the new department should be divided into two sections, ready for the partition of the country, and that the existing political department and the political advisor should give all possible assistance and advice in the formation of the new department. So he sets up this new department, and he firmly puts it under the Ministry of Home Affairs, which is under him. Right? And then, He does something even more interesting. On 5th July 1947, he makes a statement as minister of, uh, from the Ministry of Home Affairs. He says, I have a few words to say to the rulers of the Indian states among whom I am happy to count many as my personal friends. It is a lesson of history that it was owing to her political fragmented condition and our inability to make a united stand that India succumbed to successive waves of invasions. Our mutual conflicts and internecine quarrels, jealousies have in the past been the cause of our downfall and are falling victims to foreign domination a number of times. We cannot afford to fail in these efforts. We cannot afford to fall into these errors or traps again. We are on the threshold of independence. So he's already making a case for complete unity now. Complete territory. <clears throat> now, on 10th July 1947, things are moving very quickly. I, I understand moves very quickly. Uh, and so it can be a little confusing. But I just wanted to read this because this is now very important for the conception of the individuals at that time. Clement Attlee at that time is the Prime Minister of Britain. On 10 July 1947, during the second reading of the Independence Bill, he made the following statement. A feature running through all our relations with the states has been that the Crown has conducted their foreign relations. They have received no international recognition independent of India as a whole. With the ending of treaties and agreements, the states regain their independence. But they are part of geographical India and their ru rulers and peoples are imbued with a patriotism. <clears throat> no less great than that of their fellow Indians in British India, it would, I think, be unfortunate if owing to the formal severance of their paramount relations with the crown, they were to become islands cut off from the rest of India. The termination of their existing relationship with the crown need have no such consequences. In fact, making an argument against paramountcy. So what are they doing? They, they'll retain paramountcy because legally they need it. Yeah. Because in the end, legally what happens is, I am, you are my suzerain. I, I withdraw. You are now independent. But you're going to set up a legal structure that will ensure that you are quickly going to fall under one or the other. And the basis of that is already set up in the 1935 instrument of accession. That is set up in the 1935 Government of India. Why am I reading all of this? I'm reading all of this to say there is this frantic build-up just before India is becoming independent. 
that you have these 562 buggers who are sitting there. Which way are they going to go? Are they going to start creating little islands within this within the country itself? Are they going to start creating little these these major problems or other? Some of them are not small. Hyderabad was not small. JNK Kashmir is not small. Junagadh may be small, but the rest of them won't. And so, if they had started to act in ways in which they all wanted their own sovereignty and wanted to act on their own, then you would have had first a number of new states like Europe, right, which were landlocked, no ports, nothing, but they would have wanted to rely on you for their economy without ever being a part of you. I think the rulers realized this, and so they started to sign these instruments of accession. So, on independence, that is on 15-8-1947, 15th August 1947, only three princely states became independent upon the lapsing of Paramounts. Everybody else had signed an instrument of accession. But only Junagadh, Hyderabad and JNK had. The story as to how Junagadh and Hyderabad became a part of India, I'm not going to repeat, everybody knows this. Sadar Patil basically went there and Sorted it out. But uh, I would recommend two books. Uh, the Story of Integration uh, of Indian States and The Transfer of Power in India by V.P. Menon. The best books to understand how it happened. Also, Hindol's book on Sadar Patel. On Sadar. Uh, then in uh, on 27th September 1947, I told you this earlier, Kashmir signs a standstill agreement with Pakistan. Right, but within a month of that, they signed the instrument of accession with India. Because after having signed the standstill agreement with Pakistan, we understood Pakistan. The Kashmiris perhaps didn't. They signed the standstill agreement. The standstill agreement means that Pakistan will now stand still. It will not attack. It will not be aggressive. Whereas the Pakistani mindset is always, we'll sign the standstill agreement. And that is exactly when we will attack. Because now you don't expect us to attack. We understood this. So these guys came. They, so the Maharaja Hari Singh comes to Delhi and he signs the instrument of accession. And that is when we rise to defend. Now comes something very uh, interesting. Which is the instrument of accession itself. This is paragraph one of the instrument of accession. I, I hereby declare that I accede, this is Maharaja Hari Singh, right? Mm -hmm. I hereby declare that I accede to the Dominion of India with the intent that the Governor General of India, the Dominion Legislature, the Federal Court, and any other Dominion authority established for the purpose of Dominion shall, by virtue of this, my instrument of accession, but subject always to the terms thereof and for the purposes only of the Dominion, exercise in relation to the state of Jammu and Kashmir such functions as may be vested in them by or under the Government of India Act 1935 as enforced in the Dominion of India on the 15th day of August 1947. Because this, this instrument was created in the Government of India Act. Now, he goes to the Dominion of India. And the Government of India Act is clear that once you come to us, you have acceded to us. And this becomes a very important paragraph. In paragraph 3, the Maharaja accepts that... Uh, That matters specified in the schedule as matters with respect to which Dominion legislature may make laws. We'd already discussed this. There were three things on which India can make laws from day one. 
paraphrase stipulated that the terms of the instrument of accession will shall not be varied by any amendment of the government of india act or the indian independence act unless such an amendment is accepted by the maharaja by an instrument supplementary to the to the instrument in other words an instrument of accession is to stand as it does but paragraph 7 is very important nothing in this instrument shall be deemed to commit in any way to acceptance of any future constitution of india or to fetter my discretion to enter into agreement with the government of india under any future constitution hmm. so he is not actually saying i am definitely joining you because at this point in time please be clear this is 27th of october 1947 a constitution yeah. will be already in place so the conception is that the constitution will be coming anyway as things proceed in 1949 in 1949 uh the ministry of states notes with regard to jnk as fully ceded and that article 370 is transitional in order to bring the state up to the level of other states this is the argument that the union was making and this is how we have always understood it that this was only meant to bring you up to par with all other states in 5th 5th october 19 5th march 1948 maharaja hari singh establishes his own government establish establishes an interim government and there's a white paper of states issued in 1951 okay and this white paper accepts that there were only two non acceding states namely hyderabad and junagadh states which were not affected by the process of integration and continued as separate units this is before the constitution before before independence right were mysore and jammu and kashmir part b states which comprise unions of the states and the states of hyderabad mysore and jammu and kashmir and firstly article 1 of the constitution defines territories of india to include the territories of all the states specified in part 1 including part b states and jammu and kashmir at that time is a part b state so it falls under article 1 falls into the constitution and this is a very important sentence secondly with the inauguration of the new constitution the merged states have lost all vestiges of existence as separate entities that's a that's a statement directly speaking to sovereignty and in specific in relation to jnk they say legally and constitutionally therefore the position of this state is the same as that of other acceding states the government of india no doubt stand committed to the position that the accession of this state is subject to confirmation by the people of the state this however does not detract from the legal fact of accession two things that are quite contrary to each other effectively they acknowledge the plebiscite because we have to we've already gone for the plebiscite by that time uh-huh so you would you may well have the right to accept or not reject later but as of now the accession is complete if you withdraw you know, later that doesn't matter all of this sounds like are ha abhi jo bol raha hai kuch bhi likh ke aage badho nahi 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 it's quite the opposite these are formal documents that bind everyone absolutely everyone every other state has gone through this they have to accept everything now as a result of this on 17th 
October 1945, Jammu and Kashmir is given four states in the Rajya Sabha. On 25 uh, November 1949, proclamation by the Maharaja. Uh, this document is singularly the most important document in this entire narration of events. I just want to come to this one. I need to read in a little bit of detail because this is from the Maharaja himself. And in fact, what had happened was the Maharaja had, by a prior document, given power to Yuvraj Karan Singh. And so you were talking about Karan Singh being a very important uh, element in June 1949. Maharaj Hari yeah, because Singh his letter is the most important letter. Wo letter Delegating his power and authority to Yuvraj Karan Singh, who functioned as the ruler of the state. Following his appointment as the ruler, Yuvraj Karan Singh nominated four representatives from Jammu and Kashmir to the Constituent Assembly. On 16 June 1949, Sheikh Abdullah joined the Constituent Assembly together with three other representatives from the state of Kashmir, namely Mirza Muhammad Abzal Beg, Maulana Muhammad Sayyid Masudi, and Moti Ram Babra. So they are part of the Constituent Assembly, although albeit a little bit late. Right. Now, Gopala Swami Ayanga is one of the legends who was quite prominent during the Constituent Assembly debates. And when the Constitution was being drafted, Article 370 was Article 306A. So that's basically the debate on 306A is essentially the debate on Article 370. And in relation to that, he said, the accession took place on the 26th of October 1947. Since then, the state has had a checkered history. Conditions are not yet normal in the state. This is this, the, the court relies on this. And the meaning of this accession is that at present, that state is a unit of a federal state, namely the Dominion of India. You are a part of India already. The Jammu and Kashmir state therefore has to become a unit of the new Republic of India. As the House is aware, accession to the Dominion always took place by means of an instrument which had to be signed by the ruler of the state and which had to be accepted by the Governor General of India. This has taken place in this case as the House is also aware. Instruments of accession will be a thing of the past in the new constitution. Your instrument of the states have been integrated with the Federal Republic in such a manner that they do not have to accede or execute a document of accession for the purpose of becoming units of the Republic, but they are mentioned in the Constitution itself. In other words, when, when the Constitution gets enacted, and you are a part of Article 1, Schedule 1 of our first schedule, Article 1, you do not require any further document to say that you are a part of it. Yeah. Basically, no the, the entire case was built on his proclamation of 1949, because that's what... On 25th November 1949. Now, yeah. this proclamation is very important. He first acknowledges, please remember that paragraph 7 of the instrument of accession, in which Maharaj Hari Singh says two things, para 7 and para 3, where he says, you can't modify my instrument of accession. It remains as it is. And para 7, where he says, I can't commit to any future Indian constitution. Now, this proclamation of nineteen of 25th November 1949 is, everybody knows, if I'm just going to paraphrase quickly because it's been a long time. Everybody knows that a new constitution is coming. And in the best interest of the state, which is closely linked to the rest of India by a community of interests in the economic, political and other fields, 
it is desirable that the constitutional relationship established between this state and the dominion of india should be continued as between the state and the contemplated union of india and the constitution of india is drafted by the constituent assembly of india which include duly appointed representatives of this state provides a suitable basis for doing so so you accept the constitution of india as paramount one of the, one, one provision i will read from this is that the provision of the said constitution shall as from the date of its commencement supersede and abrogate all other constitutional provisions inconsistent therewith which are at present in force in this state what do you what does that mean let's go back to the definition of legal sovereignty absolutely you Very now say that's it you accept this right you are the maharaja you accept this this is where pretty much the court is turning around saying so what are you talking about article 374 we'll have to interpret 370 still it's a different matter we'll still have to interpret 370 but this idea of sovereignty is there this was the bedrock of the entire supreme court case being built and uh... no, no no i mean i've i've read you so many other documents let's say this proclamation didn't exist so what you still joined the constitution you still joined part 1 sorry article 1 You still join the constitution? Yeah, but this base, but don't you think this letter creates the? No, no, it, the it clarifies right? what is obvious, but it clarifies quite beautifully. It does it very categorically. So, what does this proclamation do eventually? One, the relationship between state and the union will be governed by the constitution of India, not by our constitution, by the constitution of India, because your constitution, the JNK constitution, is not contemplated at this time. the jnk constitution is something that arises because of jnk's domestic politics post independence <laughs> constitution of india would be enforced in jnk by its provisions that is by its own by constitution of india's own provisions in other words article 37 constitution of india would abrogate all other constitutional provisions of the state which were inconsistent with it in other words if your constitution of jnk as it stands today had been in place at that time it would have been sub, it would have been subsumed by the constitution of india anything that was inconsistent within that constitution would have failed in the face of the constitution of india now that means that paragraph 7 where you say i am not accepting i may or may not accept a constitution that's done that's been played out because you have accepted under the instrument of accession therefore paragraph 7 said i may or may not accept a future constitution you have accepted a future constitution and this is a full and final surrender of sovereignty by jnk to india legal sovereignty law making sovereignty and this is reiterated on the first day of the jnk constituent assembly by sheikh abdullah the court yeah. notes this also i'm going to read just one portion of it but now since the people's representative this is a much longer extract i'll read just one small bit but now since yeah. the people's representatives themselves sought an alliance the government of india showed readiness to accept it legally the instrument of accession had to be signed by the ruler of the state this the maharaja did while accepting that accession the government of india said that she wished as soon as law and order would have been restored in kashmir and her soil cleared of the invader the question of state succession should be settled by reference to the people he tries to keep it open right and the course of his address basically what does sheikh abdullah say 
he says that the adoption of democracy as a consequence of which there is no danger of revival of feudalism and autocracy in Jammu and Kashmir. In the previous four years, government of India has made no attempt to interfere in our autonomy. The Indian constitution provided for a secular democracy based on the principles of justice, freedom and equality. All of this comports with what we want. Uh, and you are a non-religious state. We are also a diverse religious, uh, di uh, uh, a territory of diverse religions. We also want this. There are many economic advantages of being with you. The potential of achieving land reforms is greater with you. And this I wanted to specifically read. This is actually very, I, I wanted to read this just because of an emotional thing that people say that, you know, Kashmir was Muslim, so it should have gone to Pakistan. This is what Sheikh Abdullah says. The most powerful argument which can be advanced in her favor is that Pakistan is a Muslim state and big majority of our people being Muslim, the state must accede to Pakistan. By the way, in the course of this one small parallel, I'll read away statement. You can literally see the future of Pakistan as it devolves. The claim of being a Muslim state is, of course, only a camouflage. It is a screen to dupe the common man so that he may not see clearly that Pakistan is a feudal state in which a clique is trying by these methods to maintain itself in power. Still the case. 2023 is still the case. In addition to this, the appeal to religion constitutes a sentimental and a wrong approach to the question. Sentiment has its own place in life, but often it leads to irrational action. Some argue supposedly natural corollary of this that are acceding to the Pakistan, our annihilation or our survival depends. Facts have disproved this. Right thinking man would point out that Pakistan is not an organic unity of all Muslims in the subcontinent. It has on the contrary caused dispersion of Indian Muslims. For whose benefit it was claimed to have been created. There are two Pakistans at least a, a thousand miles apart from each other. The total population of Western Pakistan which is contiguous to our state is hardly 25 million. While the total number of Muslims resident in India is as many as 40 million. As one Muslim is as good as another, the Kashmiri Muslim, if they are worried by such considerations, should choose the 40 million living in India. I mean, this is as clear as it gets. Yeah. Now, so the effect of all of this is that I just have a last bit quickly to do and then I'm going to take you to the constitution of JNK. I want to read just small parts of it. Because what the court then goes and says is, after all of these statements, external sovereignty is ours by virtue of Article 1. To the world, JNK belongs to India, has acceded to India by the same procedure as every other state. And internal sovereignty has been accepted by you, which you had left open in paragraph 7 of the instrument of accession. You have now changed that and accepted. It is a different matter that we may create a federal asymmetry in your favor for a period of time by virtue of Article 3.7. But that does not mean that we have left you with sovereignty anymore. Your sovereignty certainly is finished. I read that much detail earlier because document after document from 1935 is saying when you take certain steps, they have the legal effect of extinguishing your sovereignty. Exactly. And creating sovereignty within India. Yeah. First the federated India, then the dominion of India, and then the union of India. 
exactly and once your name is in the constitution you have accepted that sovereignty right now i'm going to make certain points about because what what the court does after this is to say neither the constitutional right so in summary the court says and just this is what i pointed on the process of integration of jammu and kashmir was a gradual one this was necessitated due to the special conditions which prevail in the state as discussed in the second the constitution of jammu and kashmir 2 was meant to play a role in this gradual process of integration as evinced by the discussion of the historical trajectory of the relationship of jammu and kashmir with the union of india sovereignty was surrendered in part with the signing of the aoa ioa that is the instrument of accession and in full with the issuance of the proclamation by yuvraj karan singh in 1949 it remains to consider whether the constitution of india or the constitution of jammu and kashmir led to the conclusion that the state retained an element of sovereignty right now comes the constitution of jnk constitution of jnk their submission is this neither the constitutional setup nor any other factors indicate that the state of jammu and kashmir retained an element of sovereignty that's their finding How do they arrive at this finding? Ah, uh, sorry, I need to pick up my copy of the JNK Constitution. But one has to appreciate the 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 background work that was done, starting from Arun Jaitley ji. And then work done by the government of India. One has to appreciate how the government of oh, India yeah. has been on the border. I mean, you don't you don't win such big battles easily, no. Yeah, yeah. The government has really thought through these things, and the finest legal minds of the country were involved in this. I, I mean, I don't know if the finest ones were, but they will be finest. Recognize the finest now. <laughs> You've done a fantastic job. <laughs> Look, all these documents existed. There are judgments that exist in between. A lot of the mental work had been done. Only question was what mechanism you're going to use. So this bit. that you are not sovereign all this rubbish had been done if this had not been done then you couldn't have had governor's rule in 1990 at various points in time can you pull up the constitution of jnk constitution of jnk yeah okay okay i i have to look at it i'll google it and pick it up and take it out uh... or or let me just share screen it's okay i have it here राइट having solemnly resolved in pursuance of the accession of this state to india acknowledged in first word first sentence what kind of constitutional document says we have acceded so basically they are a part of india that to they anyway were but they themselves acknowledge in, in what they call as a constitutional document that we have acceded Yeah. If you if you acknowledge that accession in the constitution itself, is it a constitution in fact? That's the question the union raises. 
Yeah, it should not be called a constitution. That's what they say. That the Union Government of India submission was this is not a constitution, it's a legislative exercise. Most importantly, for us, Article 1 of our constitution puts JNK in Part 3 as a Part 3 state in Schedule 1. So it's a part uh -huh. of India. Now, when the constitution of India is adopted, there is no merger agreement that is necessary. So, the petitioner was always raising there was no merger agreement, no merger agreement. Merger agreement doesn't matter, boss. You have an instrument of accession. You then form a part of the constitution of India. No merger agreement, no further documents necessary. That is what Ayengar Swami had said in his in his uh, comment at 23306A in the Constituent Assembly debates. Article 370, subclause 1, subclause C of the constitution of India says Article 1 can't be touched. There is no provision for a modification or abrogation of Article 1 in the JNK constitution itself. You can't do it. Yeah. And where does this, I'll show you where this comes from, but let's go further. To this preamble, now go further. Please note, it says justice, liberty, fraternity. But there is one very important word which you will find in the Indian constitution's preamble, which this constitution does not use. Hmm. Take a guess. I don't know. Equality? Softly. Sovereign. Ah. So the Indian preamble, Indian Constitution's preamble is We, the people of India, having solemnly resolved to constitute India into a sovereign. Originally, it was sovereign democratic republic. Socialist and secular was added later. So I'm reading the original. Uh -huh. We, the people of India, having solemnly resolved to constitute into a sovereign democratic republic, you don't even call yourself sovereign. There's no pretense whatsoever. Government ne to aise aise shabdon ko pakda hai, aise aise literal meaning liya hai. Government right now sounds like the Islamic ulema. This is what happens in the legal case, Kushal. You have to go word by word. If you don't use a word, you don't intend to use the word. Look, the word using the word sovereign in a constitution. I'm appreciating. I'm not no, no, it's not about appreciation. appreciation. Use of the word, it's, a, it's too obvious a thing for 70 years. The use of the word sovereign in a constitution is a basic thing. Yeah. If you don't use the word sovereign, then you're not sovereign. You don't intend to be sovereign. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we go further. We, the people of the state of JNK, having solemnly resolved in pursuance of accession of this state to India, very important point, already admit the accession, which took place on 26th day of October 1947 to further define the existing relationship of the state with the Union of India. Further define. So a relationship already exists as defined. If you were a sovereign document, you wouldn't be further defining this relationship. You would be devolving to yourself a sovereignty within this larger sovereignty. This actually is a very logical point. And so this, this word further is used by the court quite significantly. And so the relationship was already defined by the instrument of accession. The proclamation issued by Yuvraj Karan Singh on 25th November 1949 and more importantly and most importantly by the constitution of India. Because if Article 370 doesn't exist, none of this matters. 
So this particular document owes its existence to the existence of Article 370. Otherwise, India would not have allowed this. Now, there are small portions of the constituent uh, assembly debates of the constituent assembly of the JNK that I want to just present. They are all very clear about this. Sri Kushuk Bakula, that we are thus made an integral part of India. Sri Kotwal Chunilal, we again stand by the pledge of the National Conference that Kashmir is an inseparable part of India. Ishar Devi Mani, that the first point I want to emphasize that we all must be aware that Kashmir is an integral part of India. We have exceeded India to our we have exceeded to India by our own free will, and I see no reason why we should not be happy and jubilant over this. Hmm. We are GM Sadek, who became Prime Minister. We are integral part of India and shall remain so forever. You stick to your decision. Today we are not alone or unarmed. We are with India and 300 million, 360 million Indians. The Constitution of India says sovereign. You do not say you do not use the word sovereign. Section five of the Constitution of JNK. Can you can we go down now? Uh, let me yeah, go down. you have to scroll, not me. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. The state highlight kya tha, wo chale gaya. No, no, I, I just pulled it up. Don't worry. Okay. Now, there are various amendments that come about. I'm just highlighting this. Please see this. The state of Jammu and Kashmir is and shall be an integral part of the Union of India. The territory of state shall comprise all the territories on the 15th day of August 1947 were under the sovereignty or suzerainty of the ruler of the state, the executive and legislative power of the state extends to all matters except those with respect to which parliament has power to make laws for the state under the provision of the constitution of India. Let's go again back to the definition of legal sovereignty. The parliament of India is superior in certain respects. You are not completely free in your uh, legislative domains. So you cannot be legally sovereign. You are like any other state. Any other state has exactly this position. Then in section 6, very important, a very heart-burning section at times, permanent resident, every person who is or is not, who is or is deemed to be a citizen of India under the provision of the constitution shall be a permanent resident of the state. You created a concept of permanent residency, but you could not create a concept of a separate citizenship. You don't have a separate citizenship. You can't be a sovereign state. Mm -hmm. This is a very important and distinction. This is an important distinction. There are other examples in other parts of the world where permanent residencies were given. Right? This is perhaps how Palestine also governs. Like You, you can be a permanent resident or you can have uh, an identification document from the Palestinian Authority. Right? But that is only because within the structure between Israel and Palestine that's been accepted for persons of certain areas. You could be of Palestinian origin, but within an Israeli area, you cannot have Palestinian uh, authority giving you any marking documents. Right? So it depends on who you are, where you are. Territorially for Kashmir, you are first you have to be a citizen of India. Then you could be a permanent resident. If so the step one is become Indian, then step two is this. 
That's right. If you are not a citizen of India, you can't be a person. Because look at this. Every person who is or is deemed to be a citizen of India under the provisions of the Constitution of India shall be a permanent resident of the state if on the 14th of May, blah, 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 other conditions apply. But if you are not a citizen of India, you can't. This is a very important point. This is again a very important point. Now I'm going to go to the last section. This is very interesting. Section 147. गवर्नमेंट आई एम सो इंप्रेस्ड विद द गवर्नमेंट वाह 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 इतनी अच्छी गवर्नमेंट ने कभी-कभी गलती से अच्छा काम कर लेती है नो बिल और अमेंडमेंट सीकिंग टू मेक एनी चेंज इन दिस सेक्शन द प्रोविजंस ऑफ ऑफ सो यू कैन अमेंड एवरीथिंग इन दिस जेएनके कॉन्स्टिट्यूशन यू कांट अमेंड सेक्शन 147 व्हिच इज द पावर ऑफ अमेंडमेंट यू कैन नॉट अमेंड सेक्शंस 3 एंड 5 राइट एंड आई हैड रेड टू यू सेक्शन 5 व्हिच इज प्राइमेसी ऑफ द यूनियन पार्लियामेंट या व्हाट इज सेक्शन 3 Section three is that we are a part and parcel of our, under Article one of the territory of India. तो फिर तो खत्म ही हो गया कुछ इशू ही नहीं है. That's what I'm trying to get at. The provisions of the Constitution of India as applicable in relation to the state shall be introduced or moved. Uh, in so, in other words, you can't also amend anything that relates that is in the Indian Constitution that relates to your state. You can't be amending that either. Which means what? The Indian Constitution, by way of Article three seventy sub clause one sub clause D, can introduce portions of it into your state. You cannot be touching any part of that that constitution. So, therefore, the legal sovereignty, the right to actually create laws for you, lies only with the Parliament of India. You have no Absolutely. right to create laws beyond. Absolutely. And so, with this, there is this very grandiose way in which he arrives at the finding. And he says, the preamble of the Constitution of Jammu and Kashmir, sections three, five, and one forty-seven of the State Constitution, coupled with Article one of the Constitution of India, and with the first schedule as well as Article three seventy, indicate in no uncertain terms that a system of subordination, as understood by the definition of sovereignty, exists by which the state is subordinate to the Indian Constitution first, and only then to its own Constitution. Mm. Right, and then they deal with two judgments, and that's the end for me. I will. I wanted to deal with this because now I will come to what I think is the weakest part of that. Uh, but we'll come to that in a second. The first judgment that they cite is a judgment called. SBI versus Santosh Gupta, where the Supreme Court in 2017 has specifically rejected the argument that Constitution of Jammu and Kashmir has a status that is equal to the Constitution of India. Right. I don't think I need to read much of this. There was that one argument that I constantly kept insisting on to keep an eye on in the first part, which was for every other state, entry one, entry sorry, entry ninety-seven of list one of the seventh schedule is a residual power of legislation. 
that which does not fit under any other entry in list one, list two, or list three is a lawmaking power of the Union of India. In the case okay. of JNK, that is a lawmaking power of the state of JNK. Interestingly, the state of JNK does not actually list out for itself its areas of legislative competence. That constitution does not say we are allowed to make laws in X area, Y area, Z area. It does not have those lists like I pointed out. They say, ours is what is not that of the Union of India. But what if the Union of India says, we have everything? Eventually it does so, but at different times, Union of India was anyway saying, everything that we are doing for other states, we are doing for you also. So you have parity in terms of legislative power. You have been reduced to parity with any other state, effectively. And so what does the court say on this? It says, the fact that you had this residual power under Section 97, and I think the court missed an argument on this, but, I, but I'm just going to read first what they say. This is not indicative of the sovereignty of Jammu and Kashmir. Residual legislative powers cannot be equated with residual sovereignty. Those are two different things. If it instead reflects the value of federalism and the federal underpinnings of the Constitution of India, neither Parliament nor, nor any of the states that have the unrestricted power to make laws, each has its own sphere of legislation as demarcated by the three lists in the seventh schedule. Each is supreme in its own sphere. The states have plenary power to enact laws, but this alone cannot be taken as a sign of sovereignty of individual states. Why not? Because tomorrow, I as the Union Parliament in any event can amend you. I can amend exactly. as I want to. Exactly. And so what do they say? They say, this is these are just aspects of internal sovereignty. To me, there is another argument to be made on this, which is state of JNK uses this residual power argument actually in a way in which it is not used in the Constitution of India. In the Constitution of India, it is used to say, here is list one. This belongs to the parliament. Here is list two. It belongs to the state legislature. And here is concurrent list. And whatever, actually, these three lists are so comprehensive that everything fits in them. But, but by uh, chance, if something comes up, that is a central level document, and this is a state level. Don't oh, you think they will second, be second, in different no, I, nature? I'm on constitutionalism per se. I'm not on central versus state right now. So these three lists are so comprehensive that virtually everything fits within them in any event. And so now, if something remains un un uh, unlegislative, unlegislated, that will go to the union. That's the sense in which residuary power in, in, in list one is used. But the constitution of JNK doesn't do that. The constitution of JNK literally says X, Y, Z powers to Union of India. And under Article 370, whatever the other powers you introduce to Union of India, everything else happens. So they use residuary in the sense of we are too lazy to put down entries into lists. Instead of that, we're saying Bhagi Sahib Amara. The rest, what you keep is yours. See, this sounds as if so people were lazy. The power that they talk of retaining is effectively their idea of making a list. That's all. No, but this sounds like a like these people are like, "Humko tum karlo." Effectively, because what they are saying is, if you take certain powers, the remainder are ours. And that's what Article 370 facilitates. You can keep adding in, keep adding in. We keep taking more powers. What did we do? At one point in time in 1954, we went and said everything that applies in list one applies to you. 
But to this idea of residual power, the court further goes and says, look, internal sovereignty applies in different ways. By whatever name so called, it is clear that states in the country have legislative and executive power, albeit to different degrees. The constitution accommodates concerns specific to a particular state for providing for arrangements which are specific to that state. Article 371A to 371J are examples of special arrangements for different states. I'll show you that. If you want, I can take a look at one of these and just quickly give you a flavor. Special power, respect, a special provision with respect to uh, Nagaland, notwithstanding anything, no act of parliament in respect to religions or social practices of the Nagas, Naga customary law and procedure, administration of civil and criminal justice involving decisions according to Naga customary law, ownership of transfer and land or, or its resources shall apply to the state of Nagaland. Right? You make certain specifics, some specific examples. Assam, notwithstanding anything in the constitution, the president may by order. By, made by order, made with respect to the state of Assam, provide for the constitution functioning of a committee of the legislative assembly of the state consisting of members of the assembly elected from the tribal areas. So you create another assembly, you create another committee as well. And Manipur has something separate, Andhra Pradesh has something separate. The court is saying that these are natural aspects of a constitution. Right? You all were the only one that was temporary though. Just because this is given to the Naga people there doesn't mean that Naga people are sovereign over the government of India. Now comes the last bit that I will read because I think this is where they also pretty much uh, end it. And we are done with this today. Must have felt more like a law school lecture than a podcast, but you remember that judgment I was talking about consistently in part one, Prem Nath call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1950s Wali. Yeah. This is the bit where I think the Supreme Court needed to do more. And this judgment sort of goes weak here. This judgment in the way in which it is drafted, actually cuts against us. And this was also a constitution bench. But the Supreme Court gives it a narrower meaning. Basically, what had happened is that there was a big landed estate abolition act that was enacted by uh, the state of JNK. But this was done on 17th of October, 1950. A very curious date. Be clear. Accession to India is complete, no doubt. That is complete on 27th October 1947. Constitution of India is in place very importantly on 26th of June 1950. This is 27th of October 1950, and it is Maharaj Yuvrat Singh who passes a law, not a legislative assembly. So petitioners use this to say. If plenary legislative power still existed in Maharaj Yuvraj Singh 10 months after the passage of the Indian constitution, then it means that JNK was always a sovereign state. And our own Supreme Court has upheld this legislation passed by Maharaj, Maharaj uh, by Yuvraj Karan Singh. And the first argument, in fact, raised by the 
petitioner by the plaintiff is actually very interestingly drafted. The plaint calls the law ultra-virus to Yuvraj currency. Why? Because he says Yuvraj currency is not the sovereign in 1950. <laughs> That's what the plaintiff says. You can't be the sovereign in 1950. So you couldn't have passed a law. Ideally, the Indian Supreme Court would have said, yes, you couldn't have passed a law. It should have been done through Indian uh, constitution. Because your constitution is not in place as yet. Right? But the problem is this. At this time, on the, 20, on the, on the 17th of October 1950, I'm saying, not that the court has done this incorrectly, but could have done, explained it better. On 17th of October 1950, there is no constituent assembly of JNK. There is no JNK constitution. So what exists is the is their old constitution act, JNK constitution act of 19, where that Praja Sabha etc. had been created, where uh, the council of ministers was created, where in 1948 a uh, interim government is created. But the Maharaj still remained the repository of that power. Now this is where the question becomes very tricky. What the court turns around and says is this. The argument being raised is that with the lapse of British paramountcy, he has become Maharaj Hari Singh and through him Yuvraj Karan Singh have become the sovereigns of Kashmir. You have signed the instrument of accession. The Constitution of India has come into place. But then why is it that the Indian Supreme Court deciding this back in 1959, only eight years later, still says, no, you had sovereign lawmaking? Honestly, political will. No, no. I, you can't get away by just saying political will, boss. You can't just get away by saying political will. Well, I am saying that now. No, no, you can say. want. <laughs> Uh, Honestly, that's what it is. It's not like Article 317, in relation to Article 370, the court says certain things which really do the provisions of Article 370 subclause one affect the plenary powers of the Maharaja and the matter of the government of the state. The effect of the application of the present article has to be judged in the light of the object and the terms considered in the context of the special features of the constitutional relationship between the state and India. The constitution makers were obviously anxious that the said relationship should be finally determined by the constituent assembly of the state itself. See, they put the constituent assembly in primacy, that the relationship itself will be determined by the constituent assembly. This is the argument the petitioners are making. Premnath's judgment is their strongest suit. That is the main basis for and the purport of the temporary provision made by the present article. They are saying the temporary provision's main purport is that the constituent assembly should be the one deciding everything. And so the effect of the provisions must be confined to its subject matter. It would not be permissible or legitimate to hold that by implication this article sought to impose limitations on the plenary legislation powers of the Maharaja. What we are holding today is completely the opposite, Kushar. In 1959, a constitution bench of the Supreme Court of India says no. So if I were to ever challenge this 370 judgment, I would go and say they misread Premnath Court. 
and so you must refer this to seven judges and seven judges then have to determine whether shah faisal is correct judgment or premnath paul is correct judgment hmm. it would not be so what form of government the state should adopt was a matter which had to be and naturally was left to be decided by the constituent assembly of the state until the constituent assembly reached a decision on that in that behalf the constitutional relationship between the state and india continued to be governed basically by the instrument of accession they don't even look at article 370 in that regard so this was a judgment which was quite damning it would therefore be unreasonable to assume that the application of article 370 could have affected or was intended to affect the plenary power of the maharaja in the matter of governance of the state in our opinion the appellant's contention based on the article must therefore be rejected what had he said he had said article 370 is in place you can't be enacting laws of the maharaja court says no maharaja has the power what does the indian supreme court say to that today in this judgment the question before premnath paul was whether the monarch held plenary legislative powers after the constitution of india that applied to jammu and kashmir was adopted in the state but before the constitution of jammu and kashmir was adopted a decision is an authority for the proposition which it decides the question of whether the state of jammu and kashmir retained sovereignty upon integration with the dominion of india did not arise in that case the legislation in question was promulgated by yuvraj on 17th october 1950 before the constituent assembly of the state was constituted and the constitution of jammu and kashmir was adopted when the constitution of india was adopted all the provisions of the constitution did not automatically apply to the state of jammu and kashmir by virtue of article 370 sub clause 1 sub clause c only article 1 and article 370 apply however the absence of constitutional provisions to that regard the form of government already in the state continued to have force in other words after 370 comes in you become a part of india now 371 sub clause d the first presidential order comes in 51 so we start adding in laws into jnk in 51 that's something that we could have been clarified here properly so there is a period of vacuum in that period of vacuum nothing prevents you from continuing your old system of government Mm. Right, nothing stops you from continuing your old system of government. For which reason you could have passed this law. But I'm going to come back to Premnath Paul for a second. It was unreasonable to suggest that the provisions of the instrument of accession signed by Maharaja on October 25, 1947, affected his sovereignty. In view of clause six thereof, which expressly recognized his continuance in and over his state. This is what Premnath Paul had said. I think the Supreme Court had to deal with it a little bit better. Hmm. You couldn't have just passed it off as oh, this is a narrow judgment. It only deals with its own thing. It doesn't deal with anything more than that. You know, so maybe that's that's something where uh, a little bit has been left out. I just now that we were doing this, I just wanted to come quickly again to. to where i wanted to come to paragraph 6 of the instrument of accession but uh our chief justice has been very wise not to quote paragraph 6 <laughs> which premnath paul uses to say that my sovereignty is maintained over jnk he skips it he's like i can't deal with this he puts it aside he instead deals with paragraph 7 instead 
So yeah, I, I genuinely think that this is one problem in this in this particular judgment and the way it's being dealt with. He has crept over Prem Nath Paul. He needed to deal with Prem Nath Paul more firmly because the problem would have been this then. Had he dealt with Prem Nath Paul as firmly, he would have had to then disagree with Prem Nath Paul. And in disagreeing with Prem Nath Paul, the effect could not have been that these, these five judges could not have overridden those five judges. Hmm. Then you had to go to seven judges and this entire hearing would have failed. So to avoid that, he uses this route. He sidesteps it and he says that's a narrower question. At this point, and he ignores certain key findings and aspects of Prem Nath Paul. I mean, just to, just to reiterate, this is the Indian Supreme Court saying it. It was unreasonable to suggest that the provisions of the instrument of accession signed by the Maharaj on October 25 affected his sovereignty. We built up an entire case on how his sovereignty was affected. He could have very easily said, no, this is a, this paragraph is wrong. It's per incurium. And it is wrong. You know, so this is an aspect that stays weak. But I think with that, this entire history of sovereignty is sort of determined. I'm firmly of the view that Premnath Paul is wrong in making the determination that it does. In fact, Premnath Paul goes too far. It didn't even have to decide all this. It simply had to say that the Maharaja at that point in time was the constituted government of the state. You can't have a vacuum. There is no vacuum. And so that he had the power to make the law. They were so eager to defend the law because it's a land reform law. So eager to defend the law that they went this far. Hmm. Well, and this is a major of, flaw. This is a flaw that uh, has to be dealt with at some point. Yeah. Okay. So now I have to questions. Yeah. So, Kisinovala, Justice Call Commission had recommended the formation of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in JNK to look into and document the history of the region. Do you think that uh, commission and all of those documents would have come in handy in this case? I mean, it doesn't exist. It, it's been recommended to exist now. But yeah, I, look, I nonetheless read a lot of this historical record. This record, which is legal record, right? Like, let's be clear about this. Today, you are only determining constitutionalism mm -hmm. and the constitutional status of the state. That legal record already exists. We wouldn't have needed this TRC for that. But this Truth and Reconciliation Commission will be something going forward will be very useful. Okay, cool. Uh, someone has asked, can it be said that the peculiar relationship existed only between the dominion of India and Jammu and Kashmir and not the Republic of India? That's a, that's a very good point. That, that point, in fact, goes to the idea that once you are incorporated in the constitution of India, you are a state, no doubt. That peculiarity is now dead. It extinguishes by your incorporation the Supreme, in, into the constitution of India. Now your peculiarity is only Article 370. So we'll deal with that in the third part. What is Article 370 and how do we answer? Hmm. Then what was asked, uh, somebody asked a question about Article 1. How is the Indian Union different from the United States of America? Uh, the states are the constituent units of the of the United States of America. States were slowly acquired, right? We came to being in one go. The, their states were slowly acquired. As they came in, the states required their own independence. So that is why they have that electoral college. What is the electoral college? You don't win elections by winning the maximum number of votes. You win effectively by winning the maximum number of electoral delegates from each state. So states are the constituent units eventually. And therefore states have their own extreme powers. Okay. Uh, can the Jammu and Kashmir case... 
And I dealt with this in part one. So this person can also go back to part one. And I dealt yeah. with what federalism is. So you can look at it yeah. there. So uh, could the Jammu and Kashmir case be looked at from any decoloniality exercise or perspective? No, all of it is decoloniality. No, I mean, you know, decolonizing throughout this entire process. Mm-hmm. I don't know what perspective of decoloniality they're looking at. I mean, perhaps the problem with a lot of people who look at decoloniality is that they look at the constitution and say this constitution needs to be looked at from perspective of decoloniality and needs to be broken down. So I don't know at what level this person is asking that question. If you are saying decoloniality, yes, the constitutional is the setting up of constitution constitutionalism of democratization of state legislative assemblies, that is decolonizing in itself. But if you're saying even that process is not sufficient. And that that was a very westernized process, and we needed a more Indian process. Then I'm, you know, then then that that's various layers of decoloniality. This theory yeah. seems to be used for everything, like yeah. So, so I can't really be po- sure about no, no, where they are decoloniality. Decoloniality is a postmodern theory. It, it is what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, that's what, what I'm getting at. So, so if if you are saying decoloniality to the extent of new legislative systems. New democratic system, absolutely. You can be that is exactly the lens we are using. Which is why you, I always as you decolonize, as you decolonized, yeah. you became sovereign unto yourself. That's the question. Exactly. So the key question about decolonizing is first of all, people don't understand decolonizing and decoloniality are two completely different things. From a social science perspective, decolonizing is very different. Decoloniality is very different. Decoloniality is a Latin American theoretical framework. Decolonizing is a different of, process. Get rid of the vestiges of coloniality that exist within you even after decolon- decolonizing. So, yeah, I don't know how this question sort of... And, it's, and it's the question is, now. let's assume even if I want to use decolonial theory or theoretical frameworks on the entire Indian constitution, are Salah decolonized to what? Dharma Shastra and Dharma Sutra? Then I am really scared because I have read I, them. Short of, short of, short of us all being in Gurukuls, nothing will work. Yeah, so that's, that's the whole the point. So, so Tata, bye bye to that uh, is all I can say. But those were all the questions. There were five questions that people have asked, and uh, we will uh, we will stop over here. So Nikhil, abhi part three ke le, uh, <coughs> part three ke le tayar ho jata hu main, aur tu bhi tayar ho jana. We will do that in 2024. Let people digest part one and part two. Fair when when they digest it, then we'll run into part three. Abhi somebody had commented that Nikhil bhaiya ki baat karne ki capacity ko dekhke main bahut inspire ho gaya hu. Yar, fir inki likhne ki capacity bhi to dekh lo na yar. Yes, yes, yes. So. We we will we will join you guys uh, next time. Nikhil, as always, pleasure talking to you, buddy. Take care. Thanks, man. Thanks. Take care and uh, have a good night, everyone. All right, guys. We'll wrap it up once again. Uh, if you are watching this, please stop right now. Go and watch part one. Otherwise, you will not understand anything that we have discussed today in part two. Go back watch part one. I understand these are long podcasts, so you might take some time to break things down. I would recommend if you don't understand some things, listen to them again, then come back, write it down. If you don't understand something, you can also Google the words Nikhil has used. It is not as hard as you think it is. It's once you listen to it, you will understand the conceptual framework of how the government of India went about doing this. And part three is going to be even more fun because that's where the core and the meat of the argument of the government is going to come. Today, Nikhil touched upon, in my view, a very centrifugal piece of the government's argument that was Karan Singh's letter of 1949. 
I mean, at least in my opinion, that was a very important aspect of this entire googly that the government has said. But before we wrap it up, once again, go follow Nikhil on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it. The handle is there in the description of the podcast. And if you want me to continue doing such podcasts, this is how you can support me. Become a member of this podcast. When you become a member, then you are a monthly contributor to this podcast. It doesn't matter where you become YouTube, Patreon, Fanmo. Then I can do these kinds of podcasts and not run after clickbaity things. Then we can actually do educative sessions. Or you can buy the Jarvak podcast merchandise on kushalmehra.com or Kadak Merch. Or you can send your donations to UPI at kushalmehra at ICICI. If you can't do anything, just leave a rating. If you are an audio listener or just like, subscribe, comment on YouTube. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, take care. Namaste. Bye-bye.